wouldn't this be great so that we can invest our time in other ways? Be that on creative pursuits. Be that on downtime. They call it the productivity paradox. My concern is that if we're not in control, the technology we use and rely on has been designed to rob us as humans of our two most important resources, our time and our attention. In the good old fashioned days when we used to go on a plane and they didn't have Wi-Fi, I used to do my best thinking up in the sky. Hello, and welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. My name's Chris Meredith. And I'm Paul Fairweather. And Chris and I are pulling the plug on creativity in business and life through the lens of idea stories and visual cognition. And this week's guest, uh, Dr. Christine Goodwin. She's a neuroscientist. She's an author, published a book called Dear Digital, We Need to Talk. Um, and a keynote speaker, and I think a campaigner in a way for creativity, because she has spotted the risks we all face by becoming tethered to digital technology. Um, Paul, what did you learn? I learned so many things, and, and particularly about this interface between you know our, our biological systems and the technology. She talked about the fact that when we use technology a lot, we sigh less, and sighing is very important for us to do it every five minutes uh, about our gaze. Like I really just found her uh, insights and information to be stellar. It was, you know, opened up my my gaze to many things about <laughs> the interface between technology and creativity that I never understood. I think what really struck me is how fast things have changed in the last two or three years since the pandemic. That technology has moved so fast, and how they're going to be changing very rapidly as AI comes online. And of course, our brains won't have changed. We're still stuck with that kind of not quite prehistoric brain, but it's the brain doesn't change as fast as technology does, and those threats that she highlighted are going to... Let's get her in, let's find out. Dr. Christy Goodwin, a huge welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. Hi, Christy, great to have you on board. Great <laughs> to be here. Christy, uh, you and I were kind of drawn to each other. I noticed you stood out in a crowd of, uh, at an event I was at. You had a beautiful, brightly coloured top on, and you confessed after we said hello that did your... Your thing is about the impact of digital technology on our lives. I can't wait to hear more about that because I think it's a huge topic, a huge threat, I think, for people who are creatives like Paul and I. But before we get into that, how did you end up as a, a speaker and campaigner on this? It's, a, it's not a, a, a mission I imagine many people aspire to. No, and if truth be told, um, it was a series of serendipitous events that led me to where I am today. I started off my career as a teacher and then became an academic, and my research was particularly interested on the impact of technology on kids and teens, who I colloquially refer to as our screenagers. Um, and so I was fascinated um, with how particularly our brains and bodies are being shaped by our digital saturation or our kids and teens' digital saturation. And I initially began um, as a speaker, speaking to parents, teachers and health professionals about the particularly the neurobiological impact of technology on young people's learning and brains. But it was actually parents who would sit in parent seminars and come up very discreetly at the end and say, so much of that was pertinent to me. I realise I'm tethered to technology. I can't put it down. I am so distracted. I can't get deep focused work done. Um, I've seen my attention span shrink. I know it's impacting my eyes, my hearing. Like I, I'm physiologically experiencing this myself. 
do you speak to adults? And like any good entrepreneur, of course, I said, oh, yes, I certainly do. Um, and then behind the scenes started to, to really dive into um, broadening my research to also look at the impact on adults because the harsh reality is nobody is immune to the digital pool. We all get sucked into the digital vortex because of the way the tech's been designed. Um, and so I, I guess for the last six or seven years, my research has expanded to now look at the impact technology is having on all of us, but particularly um, adults and particularly us as adults who are knowledge workers, who are spending the bulk of our working days in, fr- in front of some sort of screen. It, it is remarkable. I, I'm very aware that when uh, I've been for you as well, Paul, and we've probably grew, I can remember um, having a calculator. Some One of the kids at school, cool kid, had a calculator. That was the very first sort of digital thing. And it had we learned how to write SO upside down on people's keyboards and things. So kind of, at school, we didn't really, do you remember that? SO and you could write oil. and um, We didn't really have much technology. And I actually even now know how to use a slide rule. But I mean, the world's changed dramatically. And, and what was behind, I think behind, the assumption behind every new bit of technology was that this is a step forward. This is a help. Now we've got calculators and we have computers and we got the internet. And each stage is a step forward. And what you're highlighting, uh, I think the rest of us are catching up with you on, is that that may not be true. Uh, you ha- you've written a fascinating book, which I profess I have not yet read, and I apologize for that. It's called Dear Digital, We Need to Talk. Could you give us some headlines? What are the downsides of this tethering to technology? How is it negatively impacting us? Yeah, and this is certainly not an anti-tech message. You know, I don't suggest we ever go, um, you know, on a digital detox. They don't work. Um, It's not saying we need to aim for inbox zero. They're outdated, redundant strategies. The harsh reality is whether we love it or loathe it, technology is here to stay and it plays an integral role in our lives. My concern, however, is that I am seeing some of the adverse consequences if we're not in control of the technology, if the technology controls us. And I think if we took a harsh look at our digital habits and behaviours, and both professionally and personally, we would recognise that we are tethered to technology. And my concern is that if we're not in control, the technology we use and rely on has been designed to rob us as humans of our two most important resources, our time and our attention. And there are some researchers who are saying we're now living in the attention economy. Um, And so my concern is from a physical perspective, we know um, the research is telling us that, you know, excessive amounts of screen time or screen use can have adverse impacts on our um, our vision, um, on our hearing, on our musculoskeletal health. It's having a profound impact on our sleep, not only the, the quantity of sleep we get, but also the quality of sleep. Um, from a, a, um, a mental health perspective, we know it's having a huge impact on our stress. And even just a really pragmatic example of how we don't even recognise, I think it's sometimes the very subtle ways that text crept into our lives. As humans, we are biologically designed to sigh every five minutes whilst we're awake. It's a natural built-in stress mechanism that regulates our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. We do it. We are not even aware that we're doing it. Two inhalations through our nose and an exhalation through our mouth. And it's our, our lovely way of calming ourselves down. Yeah. Those of you with teenagers, I'm not talking about the very overt, melodramatic, exasperated <laughs> side of the hand on the So we all know that one. But as humans, as adults, we should be sighing every five minutes. 
But new research tells us that when we are looking at a screen, be that our phone, our laptop, our desktop computer, when our eyes converge, our psi rate falls off the cliff, meaning that we are in an elevated stress state just by the mere fact that we have a very narrow gaze. Why? One of our most basic biological needs as humans is that we're designed to dilate our gaze. We're designed to look in the distance. We are not designed to have a very narrow gaze. Um, and yet this is how many of us are spending our days and we're not sighing, we're not regulating our stress response. So I believe, I think, I mean, it's two things have happened simultaneously. The first thing that's happened is our tech habits have added tiny little micro stresses to our days, tiny little things that on their own would be benign, but they accumulate things like alerts um, and notifications, multitasking, having that narrow gaze. And the other part of the equation, the second thing that's happened simultaneously is that our digital habits professionally and personally, have completely eroded, annihilated the bi biological buffers that were once baked into our days that helped us to regulate our stress response. So I think our, our tech is having a profound impact and we're, we're not even really um, at, at, at the full understanding of how it is impacting us um, psychologically and physically. Chris, I say that's a, a sigh of bad times to come. Um. Uh, <laughs> but listen, I, I, I'm really like some of those things there. You said absolutely fascinating, which I didn't know about about the gaze and and the sighing. What, what I'm also interested because I know that you do you know stuff on neuroplasticity. Um, you know, there's the obvious things, and I know that I'm always looking at my phone and we're aware of those things. But what's what you know? What's the research about what's happening inside our brain? Because you know, even someone else's brain can affect our brain. You know, we we we're always reacting to our environment. So, so what is happening in the in the in the uh, you know, later studies in terms of the rewiring of the brain? Yeah, well, we take many many years to evolve as humans. So, a lot of people say to me, "Surely our brains are or in the process of evolving so that we can um, multitask." That's a common thing I hear from people, particularly younger people, who say, "I'm adept at multitasking. I can have a headphone in, I have 18 tabs open, and my phone next to me, and I can perform at an optimal state." The research conclusively tells us um, that our brain is incapable of splitting our attention. When we think we're multitasking, we're actually doing something called continuous partial attention. We're task switching and it's cognitively exhausting. We know the brain releases cortisol, the stress hormone when we multitask. Uh, we burn through glucose, our brain's energy supply, so we feel really tired and foggy. And we actually don't retain information. When we multitask, instead of information going to the brain's hard drive, which I call the hippocampus, um, it's basically the brain's memory center, when we multitask, it doesn't activate the, um, the hippocampus. It goes to a part of the brain called the striatum. So we are not, we, we cannot really outperform some of our biological um, constraints. We have a, a biological blueprint that we need to adhere to. Um, another way that we, I'm often hearing people say, I'm capable of working for a really long period of time. You know, the people that sit down at the desk and try and pump out five hours worth of work without a break. The harsh reality is that our body has something called ultradian rhythms, meaning we go through peaks and troughs roughly every 90 minutes. Um, that's why we always so sleep for roughly 90 minute cycles. But this is one of our biological constraints. So we are working against our biology um, and our basic neurobiological needs when we keep pushing and pushing and pushing. So I don't think our brains are necessarily changing because of the tech. They are certainly adversely responding to the, uh, the uh, I call them our tech expectations, sort of the digital norms 
um, and habits that we're implementing and expecting of ourselves are incongruent with what I call our HOS, our human operating system. Chrissy, I'd love to hear about what you in your your own life. So I, I wake up in the morning, you know, I've got family in the UK, out comes my phone, there are many messages overnight, I'm sure lots of people, the first thing they do is check the phone. I've read stuff yeah. so you shouldn't do. Um, personally, I managed to get away from the town, go to the beach, go for a swim, but then, you know, I'm back on my lap. So that's what I do, and I'm sure lots of people like me. Tell us about your morning. How, how do you untether yeah. yourself from technology, or how do you control it? Yes, and you're not alone. Research um, estimates that 90% of adults now reach for their phone before their partner first thing in the morning. Um, we are so connected that we actually have a name for when we cannot find our phones. It's called nomophobia, and it is a legitimate fear when people <laughs> cannot find their beloved digital appendage. Um, so my morning, and again, this is not about some sort of digital utopia where I never touch my phone. Um, ideally, we would try to avoid our phones for the first 15 minutes. Now, it doesn't have to, you know, longer than that's great, but if you can aim for 15 minutes, and the reason is our brain transitions from these really rich, often creative states. Many people say an idea germinates when they first wake up in the morning, it's often in the shower, when they're driving or walking. And that is because our brain is in this rich transition state where it's moving from being asleep to being awake. Now, if we pick up our phone and we start scrolling, we check the weather, we check a sports report, we check the family WhatsApp group, we only need to see one upsetting, stressful, concerning message or post and we activate the limbic brain, our, our, our stress response system. And so this also triggers the beta brain state. That's the, the um, busy brain state. Now, if we were to keep those first 15 minutes, and um, you know, for a lot of people I know that seems like a long time, but that is a really rich opportunity for creativity, um, for mind-wandering. So I try to keep those first 15 minutes free. I do some exercise first thing in the morning. The other thing that I've shifted in the last 18 months is I make sure I try and get natural sunlight. Um, we know many people are not getting enough sunlight exposure, and that's why we're seeing an increased rate of myopia, which is nearsightedness. Um, researchers are arguing at the moment as to whether it's 90 minutes or 120 minutes a day, but somewhere between that hour and a half to two hours is the total sunlight exposure we need in the day. If we get that first sunlight exposure within the first hour of waking up, 16 hours later, our body will naturally start to produce our sleep hormone melatonin. It's magic. Like that is just absolutely incredible. Now it's 10 minutes of exposure on a sunny day. 20 minutes is recommended on an overcast day. But just getting out in sun in that first hour of waking up will help you with your sleep. Uh, we also know being in sunlight activates your hypothalamus. So that puts you in a really alert focused state. Um, so they're the sorts of things I do. Some exercise, some sunlight exposure, and then I try and have my coffee about an hour and a half after waking up because we also now know um, that if we have, and your listeners probably won't hear this, I can see you two cringing, uh, if we have our coffee in that, that first period of the day, um, it can actually make us feel really sleepy later in the day because it stops our body um, from blocking these adenosine receptors. And adenosine is what builds up in the day, um, a chemical that makes us feel sleepy. And if we have coffee first thing, we stop that from being absorbed. Um, and that's why we hit that sort of slump around two or three o'clock and we're reaching for another coffee or the biscuits or the the chocolate. So that's sort of what my morning routine looks like. 
It's very interesting, Chris. We've just actually introduced a lockbox into our house. We've got two teenagers. Love that. But both Car- yep. both Cara and I, you know, um, you know, we also reach for our phones. So one thing that you touched in there a couple of times, um, and there's again some some fantastic information in there. And we were talking about it earlier before we started the interview. What, what's happening to creativity? You know, what what's the impact on creativity with this with this technology? So. We know, I don't, I don't know about both of you, but my best thinking, my most creative ideas, my solutions to complex problems have not once ever come to me in an Excel spreadsheet or in my inbox. They, they just <laughs> never have. I, I don't know if your listeners resonate with that. It has never happened. Well, there goes our sponsorship from Microsoft. I think our Microsoft sponsorship went out of window a long time ago. It's been a long time. Bat- so, sorry, Microsoft. sorry, Chris. <laughs> um, so our, our best thinking often happens in the shower when we wake up first thing in the morning, when we go for a walk, when we go on holidays with no Wi-Fi. In the good old-fashioned days when we used to go on a plane and they didn't have Wi-Fi, I used to do my best thinking up in the sky. But today we fill every bit of white space with our screens. We order our coffee, we pick up our phones. We pull up at a red traffic light. Many people pull out their phones. We get in the elevator, we wait for the bus, we wait for the doctor's appointment. Every bit of white space we have is filled with we fill that void with a screen and more often than not our phone because it's usually quite frictionless. And neuroscientists say that we need to activate what's called the default mode network. This is where we turn off the thinking part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, um, and we let our minds meander. It's a fancy word for daydreaming. But we don't have time these days to daydream. You know, people go on walks now and they've got earbuds or headphones in and they're listening to a podcast or an audio book at one and a half speed. Um, we are just constantly consuming information. And my concern is that if we're not more intentional about having pockets of downtime where our mind can meander, I think that's a huge threat to creativity um, because um, we're just not going to have that space. My other concern is that if we are spending so much of our time consuming information, it's really hard to disentangle what's an ingenious, creative, original idea on our behalf or whether this is sort of an idea that has morphed from something else we have consumed online. Um, In my book, I share a really sobering statistic, and that is it is estimated that the average Australian adult will spend 17 years of their lifetime on their phones. Oh, boy. 17 years. 33% of our waking hours. If you've ever been brave enough to look at your screen time report, if you're an iOS user or your digital wellbeing report for Android users, and you look at that horrific statistic that tells you your weekly average screen time score, you could see how that could happen. And I'm worried. I mean, that represents a significant opportunity cost for those ideas to germinate and for that creativity to bloom. I'm sort of very conscious. You're campaigning for some very exciting but fragile ideas, if I would put yeah. it like that. Sighing. I've never heard anyone talk about the thoughts of sighing before. I'm really excited by that idea, but who cares about sighing? And then, and now daydreaming and mind wandering, which, which is great to hear you talk about the, the, how the brain creates and we know the default network and so on. But, but 
again, a fragile idea. And, you know, when you're caught daydreaming in class, you get whacked around the ears and told to concentrate again. It's not fashionable. It's not kind of... So these these are kind of fragile concepts. I think you're explaining they're powerful, important concepts. And they're pitted against the world of capitalism, the dopamine hit from technology and so on. I guess my question is, what hope is there for these fragile things to compete against advertising and the the, the need to us to know what's going on in our social groups and so on and so on. What hope is that? This is why I fall back on neuroscience and psychology. I, this is why I'm an avid researcher because it is really hard to argue with research and science. Um, you know, when I can say this is what's happening in your brain when you've got 16 tabs open and you're oscillating between your emails and your team's chats, this is what's going on. Um, I find that if we can substantiate these um, bold claims, these, you know, conceptual challenges to how we operate um, and the, the deeply embedded, I think we'd all agree, our tech, tech has got its tentacles into every single facet of our lives. Um, and these habits are so deeply entrenched um, and they are hard to break. But I think if we go back to how we are neurobiologically designed, what is our, I guess, our biological blueprint how can we, and again, it's not an anti-tech message, how can we align how we do use technology but do so in a way that works with rather than against our human operating system, then I think there's a rich opportunity for us to change. But this is why I don't align with the, you know, do a digital detox or cut out social media. It's yeah. not long-term or sustainable. Um, example, are there any institutions, be it educational or businesses, that, that are getting it right Um how sh I guess how should we be bringing up our kids or how should we be training ourselves? You, you've talked about the morning routine, which I think is very interesting. It puts the sunlight. But um, is it a case of switching your phone off for an hour a day? Is it a case of having a plan? Uh, how my, is this my tech? What do, you, what do we do? Yeah, so the organisations who I'm seeing and working with that are leading the charge in this space are creating what I call digital guardrails. They're coming up with um, digital agreements or team charters about how they will intentionally use technology. So these are actually articulating what are our tech expectations. Um, many people feel that they have to be hyper-responsive um, to the team's chats, to the emails. Um, we know that people feel that they can't switch off at night because what if I miss an important message? So it's taking the time to actually, and, and again, through no fault of anybody's, you know, we were sort of thrust into remote work and then we were sort of transitioned to hybrid work. And I don't think we've ever seen such rapid change without sort of a change management mm. program supporting it. Um, and so I think now's a critical juncture in time where we reevaluate, we come up with some parameters, what are our, our norms, practices and principles that underpin effective use of the technology. So coming up, I guess, with your your digital guardrails professionally. And I also encourage people to do that personally. You know, where are your no-go tech zones at, at, in your house? Um, have you got a, a, a digital depot where devices go when you come home so you can connect with your loved ones? Um, do you want to switch off before you go to sleep so your, your sleep isn't um, impacted? Coming up with some of those parameters because the tech's only going to get more and more immersive, more and more pervasive with AI, wearable technologies, the metaverse. Um, so I think if we're not sort of on the front foot and putting up those parameters and borders and boundaries, the tech will unfortunately have an adverse impact. Um, Christine, just before, you know, leaving aside 
the monster, uh, AI. Um, is there any research in terms of the difference between like writing and typing? Um, I, I know yes. that I default to typing, typing because I'm I'm dyslexic, and so I make my writing illegible, so no one can see that I can't spell. Um, so I find I find typing much better with you know spell check and stuff like that. But I know a lot of people have said, you know, if you if you want to be more creative, you should write rather than type. What, what, what's the research behind that? Yeah, so the, the research particularly on, um, I've looked at the research more on terms of retention, and we know you will retain far more information if you handwrite it, and it doesn't matter if you handwrite it on a digital device. Um, but so long as there's some sort of motor action, you will retain far more information compared to when you're typing. And there's a couple of postulated theories. One is that when we type, because we often tend to be a much faster typist than a handwriter, we type um, verbatim. But when we handwrite, I have to synthesize the information and I have to extract key concepts or I might annotate or or draw a symbol um, that I can't really do very easily digitally. Um, Another plausible theory is that when we are writing, we actually use muscle memory. Um, Now, when we hit a keyboard, we do activate muscle memory, but when I touch the A key, it's the exact same muscle memory as when I touch the S key or the P key. So it's not distinguishing. Our brain isn't just making those subtle distinctions. So yes, um, and and I was someone who was very reluctant. Um, I've always had written notebooks, copious scrapbooks. I plan all of my keynotes on a big piece of paper. It's messy, um, but in recent times, um, just because I'm doing a lot more traveling and I want to be able to access some of that handwritten easier uh, information in an, in an easier way, um, I have reverted to a, a digital um, handwriting tool and it's been a game changer. I remember you were holding it when we first met and yes. asked you about it, yes. Yeah. So okay. maybe that is an example of, of technology helping. In other words, augmenting. it's it's yeah. harnessing the... Augmenting, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to ask the opposite because we... We've been deep diving on the perils and pitfalls, and are there some upsides? What, what, how Absolutely. has technology helped us, especially with creativity? Um, um, because of the, I, we're, I'm very aware of this mind wandering idea that, that it's so important for downtime to kind of daydream, to let your your um, your brain explore ideas, and to live with uncertainty. But so, how, how can technology help us be creative? Oh, I think there's huge opportunities here. Um, One of the key things I think we've got uh, the capability now and it's easier to do with the presence of AI is to automate tasks. You know, those manual, repetitive, mundane tasks zap us of our brain power um, but are essential things that we have to get done. Um, Automating some of those particular tasks so that we then have more space. My concern, and I'm the first to say I think AI presents really rich opportunities, my concern is that if we do remove some of those more rudimentary, um, you know, mind-numbing tasks, that what we'll end up doing is filling that void with more and more work. And and yeah. I want us to be really intentional and say, well, wouldn't this be great so that we can invest our time in other ways, be that on creative pursuits, be that on downtime. Um, they call it the productivity paradox. And many of the digital technologies that were introduced into our society years ago that were touted to make us more efficient, to make us more effective, haven't had the productivity gains because they've either A, distracted us, or B, we filled that time doing other tasks as well. So I think there is certain yeah. rich opportunity. 
um, offloading. We know, I, I don't know about both of you, but I experienced something called digital dementia. I find it really hard to remember facts and details these days. And we're not imagining it. The research has quantified or estimated, I should say, that the average adult is now consuming the equivalent of 74 gigabytes worth of data a day. 74 gigabytes. That's more than our ancestors would have consumed in a lifetime. And the, the part of our brain that I mentioned before, that hippocampus has... Oh, you're holding bigger. up a, a model of a human brain. Yeah. Yeah. And so our hippocampus hasn't got any bigger. So we just can't consume that huge volume of information. And that's where technology can set in. You know, offloading things to a, a digital list, to a CRM, um, having a calendar that's... But your message then is let's use the technology to free us up to be creative. Let's not yes. use the technology to help us to be creative. I, yes. I think it's really helpful. I, I, Paul have heard me tell a story before, but but I, I have in my mind's eye a vivid recollection of a picture in a magazine that I was given when I was about 10 or 11 years old. It was a kid's kind of educational magazine um and they did a forecast of what life would be like in the year 2000 and giving my age away now um it, miles in the future and there was this picture of these almost alien looking people this is the human beings way ahead in the year 2000 wearing these strange clothes and big brains and uh, because it's all about what happens in your you know brain and the question that it uh, addressed was how are we going to fill our work waking hours because Computers will do everything for us. Machines will do everything for us. So it'll be all about leisure. It'll, it, we'll have to sort of come up with things to do. And, of course, the technology has arrived. That part of the forecast worked. But the result hasn't been leisure. The result has been more work. And I, I can absolutely understand this idea of the productivity paradox. It, yeah. um, and maybe that now is time to kind of dig our heels in and say, if I'm becoming more efficient, that gives me more time to stop, gives me more time to wander, gives me more time to be creative not less. Yeah, and I think we certainly yeah. do that, but I also think it's part of a broader societal, particularly Western society narrative about the busy and the burnout and the hustle culture. And I think we still have very attached notions to what productivity and performance looks like. I think we've still got industrialised models of performance, and that is the more hours I work, the more output I create. And, you know, for people who are creatives, um, or with people who need to perform a job with some creative elements to it, that's simply not, it's not, you know, input, output measurements. Um, so we really need to shift. And I still think in many organisations across the globe, we still have adopted and um, are, are sort of worshipping at that industrialised model of performance. It's very true. I, I can remember frustration sometimes when I've been doing work for clients and they you maybe get to produce a little video clip or a report or something. And the question they ask is, how long will it be? And the implication is a longer clip is better than a shorter one. We get more value. Or if it's a report, how many pages? More pages is more the more value. And I'm thinking, this is a creative product. You know, maybe in one page I can I can deliver a whole lot more than a hundred. But no, longer is better. More hours is yeah. better. And yeah. Christy, you've given us uh, so many insights and yeah. tips and tricks. Um, we, we're just unfortunately running out of, out of time. Uh, one of those commodities, uh, and um, <laughs> it's the same. We got tension. We're only It's the same. We can't digitize in the little packet. All the other things you've got to tell us. Um, but if there, if there were, uh, you know, three simple things, you know, uh, for our listeners yep. to, you know, so you know, not about you know doing a thirty day detail or anything like that. 
what what are the three simple things that you would advise you'd give to our listeners? Yeah, so number one is to identify your peak performance window. We, according to our biology, have a, a chronotype and our chronotype biologically dictates when we're most focused and alert. It can also shape when we're more creative. And the trick, I believe, in this modern landscape we're in is to then build a fortress around our focus during our peak performance or creative windows of the day. So we, we need to start, I think, aligning the cadence of our days to our chronotype, and that's what dictates those sort of focus and creative periods of the day. Um, when it comes to building that fortress around our focus, I have three golden rules with notifications. One, turn off all non-essential notifications. Our brain cannot biologically differentiate between a team's notification pinging us and a tiger chasing us. Our brain says potential danger or stressor, I better look, I better respond. Um, so first, turn off non-essential ones. Um, second, um, bundle or batch your notifications. You can now choose what time or times of the day your Teams notifications, your WhatsApp notifications come to you rather than sort of dribbling in throughout the day. And number three is to create VIP lists. So when you activate focus mode or do not disturb mode, everybody gets blocked apart from those VIPs. So whether that's if you've got children, childcare or schools, whether you've got aging parents, whether you've got a colleague and you're working on a time-sensitive project and they will need to get through to you. Um, so creating those VIP lists can be another way. Um, so we've talked about chronotype, your notifications, and my third one um, is about switching off. You know, we have to turn off. We don't even expect our machines to keep going all of the time. We provide our machines with maintenance. We do upgrades on them. We update their operating systems. Um, we need to afford ourselves the same luxury. And so we need to be more intentional and I think we need to reconceptualise the importance of switching off and unplugging um, and just being idle with our thoughts. They'd be my top three. So fantastic and a great thought to leave us on. Thank you. A very practical, really helpful. Uh, Christy, I've learned so much from you. I'm very inspired. I can't wait to buy a hard copy of your book. <laughs> Dear Digital, we need to talk. <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you for having thank me. You very much. I appreciate yeah. it. Oh, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. They were great questions. No, thank you. I really enjoyed that. Well, Chris, what what a fabulous conversation. And besides all the information, the way that Christy summed up, you know, the end of the interview with those those three points, uh, very very actionable, very detailed, uh, with with good reason. So. I thought that was a, a, an absolute excellent interview. Really uh, what a, one of the, the most inspiring. It, it, where in terms of it, uh, prompting me to take action, I'd love to read a book. I, I'd lo I, I feel like switching my laptop off right now. Um, I want to make sure I don't have my phone by the bed in the future. I, I'm in a way alarmed, um, but hopefully alarmed in a good way by what technology might be doing to us and, and impact our creativity. Yeah, no, look, I, I think you're right. It is that balance of what she is, you know, it's saying that the impacts are, but giving us an insight about what we what we can do. Um, so, look, complex issue, uh, one that, you know, most of the world is somehow involved in. And, uh, yeah, 
So if, if you're listening to this and you've got a comment, uh, please write us a letter um, or perhaps pop around and have a face-to-face. <laughs> or like put a comment in the chat. We're going to use digital technologies. We kind of have to, but we'd love to hear from you. Um, please put a rating. We'd love it if it's a five-star rating, but uh, but most of all, tell your friends about the Common Creative Podcast. And for this show particularly, I think, tell them about how they can untether themselves from technology. Yeah. So thanks for listening and uh, please tune in next week for the next episode of the Common Creative Podcast. We'll see you then.